ask you to stand with me. We're in the midst of 1 John. And our passage this morning is chapter 2. Kind of a, a different passage than we've had previous to this. I'm going to call it a pastoral parenthesis. Where John the pastor, in the midst of teaching two immense pillars. Last week Adam preached on darkness and light and hatred and love. And then coming next week is going to be the first command to not love the things of this world. But here John the pastor slows down a parenthesis and speaks tenderly, comfortingly to his congregation and to us. John writes, God speaks. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. You may be seated. God's word for us this day. If we were to think, in kind of big words, but we're going to define them as we go, transcendence of God and imminence of God. Those are going to show up throughout this passage. And we're going to define them, in a sense, by a bit of examples. If we go back to the beginning of time, 1 John talks about in the beginning Let's go back to the beginning. Genesis 1. In the beginning, the transcendent, sovereign, completely in control, omnipotent God speaks the universe into existence, into existence by his transcendent nature. But then the next day, in a sense, there he is in an imminent way, walking in the garden, talking to Adam and Eve. He is transcendent and imminent. Or maybe the picture in the home of a big, strong father, transcendent as he uh, uh, takes care of the home, but imminent as he gets on the floor, plays with his young toddler daughter, with her dolls, her toys. It doesn't give up his transcendence amidst his innocence. They go together. Or finally, if you're a, a, a movie um, lover, the, uh, the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, uh, Peter Jackson, in, that, in those films, he's the transcendent director in control of everything, but he also wrote himself into six, seven uh, cameo appearances in the film, in a sense showing imminence. I'm in and among taking part in the film. In the same way, in this passage, we're going to see God's transcendence from the beginning, but also his imminence, where he is pastorally caring for his people. John doesn't give us, in this passage, any, any commands. There are no go do this or that. Rather, it's a rest, hear, be encouraged. After all said it many times, we, we are human beings, not human de- doings. What we do flows out of who we are. Our character leads to our conduct. God speaks into who we are 
and the actions follow. So for this journey, if you will, we'll be walking through the passage. Encourage you, keep your Bibles open because we're going to refer to the, the, the phrases uh, that John gives us here. And you've got a few notes there in your bulletins if you want to follow along, fill in the blanks to keep us uh, moving through this. As we dive in, a few technical questions as we kind of till the ground before we uh, go deep into this. You heard as we read, there's essentially six, six sentences, okay? How many groups of people is John speaking to here? Is it six? Okay, we're going to say no to that. Is it three? Because he repeats to each group two times, all right? There are volumes of information uh, that scholars write on this. We're going to boil it down and keep it simple and simply say this. When he speaks to the little children, children, dear children, we know elsewhere in 1 John that he's referring to believers. He's referring to his congregation. So when he speaks to children, we'll take that as all of us, okay? So the passage is directed to all of us, but then within that, there are two groups. He's going to speak to older and to younger. And there are times in God's word where we don't want to take something that is male and make it gender neutral. This is a case where when he's speaking to the older men, that can apply to older men, older women. Younger men can apply to younger men, younger women. It is okay to do that in this context. One other minor technical point, why repeat himself? You know, why does he address the same folks again and sometimes just repeat something essentially the same? Very simple. He just wants to get their attention. He wants us to get it. Almost like the, the, the story of the pastor who preaches the sermon one week. Congregation loves it. He comes back, preaches the same sermon the next week. Kind of wonder, okay, what's going on? But he does it a third week. So finally, somebody asked, Pastor, why are you doing that? Three sermons, same one each time. Well, congregation, you didn't get it the first time. So we're going to do it again until you get it. Simply, repetition, he wants to make sure that we get it. So there are some things that John's going to be repetitive for here. So first, the message to all Christians. When he says children, he's speaking to his congregation, to all of us. Essentially, three things. Your sins are forgiven, number one. Number two, because of his namesake. And number three, because you have known the Father. Okay? So those three things. First, your sins are forgiven. You know, a rather basic statement. If you've been in the faith for a while, okay, you've heard about forgiveness, you've heard about sin. But let's make sure we get it, what he's talking about here. With the Western world we tend to often trivialize sin. We tend to trivialize it. It might be the case that we say, that's just the way God made me, and I can't change. It's my heredity, it's my genetics, it's whatever. It's just the way God made me. I can't change, and it's not really sin or anything like that. So in a sense, that's not even saying the devil made me do it, saying, God, you made me this way. You made me do it, in a sense. So that's not what sin is. That's not what we're being forgiven for. Because in that case, there's not even forgiveness for anything because it's not sin. So that's not right. Or there's the argument, 
well, I'm mostly good in these lesser bad things that I do, the good things outweigh the bad. So the question would be, so you think you're good enough? Heaven is a perfect place. God is there. In the confession, we said any sin blazes in the eyes of God. No little bad thing is allowed in heaven. Do you really think you're good enough that the balance is going to come out in your favor? That's not the right view either. Or the argument, God is love, and he wouldn't punish anyone. No, that's not true either. God is a just God, and he must deal with sin. So those views, you hear them in your conversations. If you talk to an unbeliever, you're going to hear that, and we sometimes rationalize that in our own lives. Those trivialize sin. On the flip side... You may have said this yourself or surely heard it. This sin or these sins or my life has been so bad, there's no way that God could forgive me. So in that sense, not minimizing the sin, but in a sense maximizing it, sounds humble at first. I'm so bad, God could never forgive me. The problem with that is that it minimizes the work and the person of Christ. To say that, Jesus, you couldn't do, you are not able to take care of this sin, maximizing ourselves over Christ. In a sense, it's a lack of humility, even though it sounds like humility. We're elevating ourselves above Christ when we do that. So both of those cases wouldn't lead to the right forgiveness. In the end, the forgiveness comes not so much by looking at ourselves, but, what does it say? For his name's sake. The forgiveness becomes because of the name. His name. What's in a name? As Romeo says, Shakespeare fans, what's in a name? That which we call a rose would be as sweet by any other name. Montague's Capulets, they're just names. Juliet, I love you. The name doesn't matter. Biblically speaking, not the case. Names matter in the Bible. Go back to Moses. Moses goes to God. He says, I'm not going to get the Egyptians, God, unless you tell me who are you, who's sending me. i got to be able to tell them. I am who I am, Yahweh, Jehovah. I am going with you. I am the eternal, all-powerful God. My name, I am. Proverbs says, better a good name than all the riches. Jesus comes along, speaks to the Pharisees. That name that Moses used, I am, he uses it. I am, over and over. And the Pharisees realize that the name that he's claiming, and they say, we're going to kill you because we know you're saying you are God. That name is important. Paul says that the name of Jesus, every knee will one day bow. And Acts tells us that there's no other name by which we can be saved. So the name, the name is, it's not so much that there's something magical about the name Jesus. It's that the name signifies the person, the essence, the being of whoever is being referred to. This is saying the forgiveness comes through Christ alone is the only 
possible way. The only possible way. That's the reason that our sins are not too great. When we rest, when we trust in Christ alone, we're magnifying, we're glorifying his work and his person. But there's one more thing he gives to the children, to all of us. He says, you know the Father. You know the Father. So that actually points to the Trinity. Okay, he says just Father, but it's pointing to the Trinity because you know the Father through the Son. And the way we know the Son, the Spirit spreads abroad in our hearts. The Holy Spirit allows us to know the Son. In Nabil Qureshi, powerful story in his book, many of you may have read, um, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. He paints the picture as he was converted from, from uh, being a Muslim to a Christian. And in his, in his short life, he would uh, engage lovingly other Muslims and help to point them to the value, the truth, the realization of the Trinity. And he would, show, he would show them, he would say, if there is a God at all, he must be the greatest of all his attributes. Because if you take one attribute and he is lesser than something else, then that's God and he's not God. So he must be the greatest of all his attributes. So he must be the most just judge. Because that's one of his attributes, to be just. That means he must punish every sin. If there's one that he lets go, he's not just. He's most just. He must deal with every sin. But he's also merciful, so he must be the most merciful. He must deal with forgiveness for every sin. If he's going to be the most forgiving, he must give a sacrifice in order to be forgiving. And that sacrifice must be the most sacrificial sacrifice. What sacrifice would be most sacrificial? It would be God giving himself. And the Christian triune God is the only one that offers that in giving the Son, who's the eternal God as well, in sacrifice for our sin. So for the unbeliever... It is not the case that all religions lead to the same place. They can't. They don't proclaim the same thing. I mentioned earlier transcendence and imminence. Okay? Some religions are, in a sense, take the transcendence without the imminence. So we could say that they are hyper-transcendent. If you have a God who is so far removed, so far transcendent, that he has nothing to do with us, then that God is inaccessible and he's unknowable. So when you come to your end of your life, as with the Muslim, there is no true hope. That God, Allah, cannot commit himself to anything here. He will not be bound in any way. So when you die, even if you think you please him, it's just, I hope he lets me in. I hope he's merciful. There is no true hope. He's so transcendent, he will not bind himself to anything here because he is hyper-transcendent. Okay, so we don't want that. So let's consider an Eastern religion where it's hyper-imminence. God is so in, among, 
with us that he's the chair. He's your cup of coffee. He's whatever. So what do you worship in that? What difference does God make? You just go through life, a little meditation, mumbo-jumbo here, and hope maybe I'll come back as a frog. I hope I'll come back as another person. It's kind of irrelevant. Why worship a God like that? That's what happens when we don't get the perfect picture that Scripture gives us of the God, our God, who is perfectly transcendent, perfectly imminent with us. So once Paul, I mean, uh, John establishes that, he speaks to the two groups, speaks to the older. He speaks to the, and in the sense, the fathers that he uses there is a respectful term, kind of like in the South, ma'am, sir. He's being respectful in this. And he says to them, he says, you have known, simple statement, but have known, those of you who pay attention to the grammar, that's what's called a perfect tense. Perfect tense just means that something happened in the past, but it has an ongoing effect. Okay? You have known him, but it makes a difference now. So it's not the case that you just prayed a prayer when I was five years old, asked Jesus in my heart, and okay, I guess once saved, always saved, and we just go on from there and it doesn't make any difference in my life. He's saying, no. That's not what I'm talking about. Have known is, yes, you prayed, you committed your life to Jesus as Savior and Lord, and he is with you for the rest of your life. Now, in that relationship, there are going to be times where it's tough and you don't feel close, but you still have relationship and you still have known him, and it has an ongoing effect. It has an ongoing effect. And as we look at that, he says, you have known who? Him who is from the beginning. Okay? Adam preached to us the first passage in this about him who was from the beginning, the Lord Jesus. So many of the people that John's writing to here actually knew him, saw him, heard him, touched him. They were with Jesus. And John is saying the way that you know him in your head should be much more than that. It should go down to your heart, resulting in obedience. It was meant to be a transformative knowing. That is what he intended there in that. So in the midst of this whole book up to this point, all we've had are what we might call indicative statements. There have been no commands our first true command comes next week. But baked into these indicative statements is an underlying command. The fact that you have known him who from the, is from the beginning is to imply that there should be transformation in their lives and our lives. So let's, let's get an application for some of the older folks. Many of you are at a stage where You've known Jesus, not necessarily from the beginning, like these folks are, but for a long time, we'll say. You've known Jesus for a long time, and that's a good thing. Your temptation at times can be this. I get it. I know. I know. I know. But in your heart, you're saying, yeah, but... I know how the world really works. I've heard a lot of these truths, but I also know how the world really works. 
Kind of like the older couple at a wedding, watching the younger couple up there, saying their vows, so happy. And the wife in the comment watching, oh, that's so wonderful. The bliss, ah, yes, and the husband leans over. Yeah, just give them about a month, and they'll know what it's really like. So the older folks, we, you, can get, you can get cynical there in saying, yeah, I hear the truth, but I know how the world really works. Challenge, don't be cynical. John's writing to the same kind of folks there, not allowing for that cynicism. Instead of being cynical, reach out to the younger folks. Help them so that they don't make some mistakes that you've made. Encourage them to do the good things in the Lord that you've done. One-on-one, one-on-two. This life is too short for older folks for you to contain all that godly knowledge. Pass it on. Older men, older women, pass it along to us who need to hear it. Don't wait to be asked. Go find someone. Invest what you have. And don't sit on the sidelines being cynical. And we're, we're experiencing something special if you will, in, in the church right now. As, as Chris mentioned, Sandy Lawson, and as, as uh, Adam, Pastor Adam, has, has encouraged us as a congregation. Sandy, in hospice care now with, with cancer, she is a picture of this, one who has known the Father well for many years, impacted many generations, continues to do this, now in potentially her last days. And we must continue to pray for her, write her letters, text her, go visit when there is an opportunity, whatever it may be, return that blessing in some small way to carry through this dear saint, to carry her through as well. So older folks, in the end, again, this is John the pastor saying to be encouraged where you are in the walk with the Lord. So then he moves to the young, the younger folks. And what, what kind of age range, who are the younger ones? At that time, the Greek philosopher, philosopher Philo used uh, the same word that John uses for an age range in the fourth of seven stages of life. It would come out to, say for us, around the 20s or so. So I'm going to speak to especially the younger folks, our CO folks, our college folks, other teens and so forth around, because this is a powerful, this is a, a good message that he gives to you. First of all, simply put, you're commended for literally being in church. There are plenty of older folks in here who would say at this stage of life, and regretfully so, church wasn't important. Just sleep in, St. Mattress, Bibleside Baptist, whatever it might be. I don't need to be in a local congregation, okay? You're, they're missing out. So you're to commend it that you are a part of this church and of the greater body of Christ. You're building capital in your relationship with Christ that will make a difference in the future. In the word he says, he says, you're strong, you're strong. He only uses this word once in 1 John, and then he's going to use it many times in Revelation. And many of you, you're at a stage of life where you're like, I could, I could live forever, okay? 
But you are to use that strength for what is right, not reckless. And as we heard in Isaiah, even youths grow weary. Even youths are going to grow weary. So you're not going to necessarily have that strength all the time. You're at a stage of life where you can make an impact. If we look at biblically, who were the movers and shakers? Who made a difference? So often, biblically, it was, folks, in your age range. Whether it's the spies going to Rahab and Jericho, Daniel and his friends, King David, King Josiah, Mary, mother of Jesus, folks in your age range make a difference for good or for ill. And so again, in Isaiah 40, we see your strength is not eternal. You are still mortal. Even you grow weary and faint. And where will you find your strength? Those who wait, who depend on the Lord. And the charge to you comes in a sense. The psalmist says, um, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. Be committed, be committed to God's word. And with regard to that commitment, okay, young men, young women, you should shoulder some responsibility. Don't be risk-averse to responsibility. Don't overthink them. Many folks make those initial commitments, but then they bail, in a sense. And there's a, there's a powerful secular article in the New York Times that talks about, a guy named David Brooks talks about the concept of bailing, he says. He says it's one of the defining acts of our culture, our culture of ephemeral enthusiasm. And so what he says is, young folks, jump into something. Okay, I'll do this, I'll do this. But then the schedule creeps in, busyness creeps in, and it's easy to just bail on that commitment. As easy as just firing off a text, my schedule's too busy. Got too much on my plate, you'll understand. As easy as just calling off an Uber driver, I'll call off this commitment. And the problem is, that's not thinking of others. Philippians says, put others' interests above your own. When you leave that ball, somebody else will have it. That system, that ball, that program, whatever. So the encouragement and the challenge is to follow through on your commitments to good things. Not commitment for the sake of commitment. Commitments to the things that the Lord calls you to stick in them even when they get difficult. And I finish with the, 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 the last encouragement that John gives here about overcome. He uses that word overcome. And again, it's to the younger folks, but this will apply to all of us as well. He says, you have overcome the evil one. The first mention of the devil in this book. First mention of the devil, about overcoming the devil. The other thing is, this is a perfect verb again. It's one of those ones that happened in the past, has an effect in the future. Okay? If we think of, you know, what comes to mind for me is, say, the, the pro athletes, the, 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 the NFL football players, they have, many of them, overcome in their careers. They were excellent athletes, Great careers, overcame, were, were super powerful. But then the effect, the ongoing effect of that is, sadly, so many of them are 
or crippled, hobbled because of the effect of something that happened in the past on them in the future. But for us here as believers, this overcoming in the past has such a powerful and good effect on us in the present because, simply put, we overcome because Christ overcame. Soul reason. We overcome because Christ overcame. That's where this transcendence and this imminence meet in a wonderful, powerful, even terrifying way. What do we mean there? First, the imminence. This year, in this month, 500th year of the Protestant Reformation. 500 years ago, essentially, the Protestant Reformation happened. And the blessings that came out of that are not just for this little church here, not just for Presbyterians. It's for Baptists. It's for Methodists. It's for Protestants. The great truths that were found biblically and promoted out of there. Say, for instance, perseverance of the saints. They rightly affirmed against what the church was teaching, that you could lose your salvation. You don't know for sure. They said, no. Those that God has accepted in Christ will persevere until the end because he guarantees it. He guarantees it. So there, are, there is the glorious promise to those who are in Christ that when that final breath comes, that the Lord Jesus will carry your soul across the dark chasm of death into paradise because he promised and he must succeed. The imminence of Christ with the dear believer that he will bring to completion and he will not fail. Then there's also the transcendent aspect. The transcendent aspect of overcoming. We overcome because Christ overcame and that has ongoing effects on the last day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and he gets his church All the universe, in effect, will bow. Every knee will bow. Creation from the smallest subatomic particle to the largest, farthest away star will be changed. When Jesus comes, he casts the devil into hell forever in the lake of fire. And he changes and makes it a transcendent reality because our God is sovereign And in control. Just like the story. Older woman walking by. Sees a young boy reading his Bible. Says. I like that book young man. We win. Let us pray.